0: Welcome to the new Docs in a Pod, presented by WellMed. Over the next half hour, Docs in a Pod will educate you about the health and wellness of adults everywhere. Co-hosts Dr. Tamika Perry and veteran broadcaster and attorney Ron Aaron will share information to improve your health and well-being. And now, here are Ron Aaron and Dr. Tamika Perry. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Docs in a Pod. We come to you every week with a discussion of a variety of, of issues affecting patients, both seniors and others. And you can also hear this show on any podcast service that you use to get your podcasts. Today, we take up a very, very important topic in light of this being National Mental Health Month. And our co-host, Dr. Tamika Perry, I'm sure gets into this with her patients as well. Dr. Perry is Associate Medical Director at WellMed oversees several large clinics in the Optum Care North Texas region and is also an associate medical director whose goal is to support the providers at these clinics. Dr. Perry earned her undergraduate degree from Prairie View A&M University, went on to graduate from Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, where she was a National Health Service Corps scholar, completed her family medicine residency at Methodist Charlton Medical Center, where she served as chief resident. Dr. Perry is board certified by the American Osteopathic Board, and she also is a diplomat of the American Board of Obesity Medicine. And Dr. Perry, mental health, behavioral health, mental illness, that doesn't affect any of your patients, right?
1: No, that's totally the opposite. So did you know that depression is one of the top comorbid conditions of our senior population, you know, often unrecognized or taboo in nature? So I am so elated to have our guest today so we can debunk some myths and see what we need to do about it.
0: Well, let me take a moment and introduce our guests, uh, Dr. January Jurdivig and Daniel Holland are both with us. Pardon me while I sneeze and I apologize. Maybe we can edit my sneeze out when it happens, Catherine, our (laughs) board operator. Uh, Since she was a young adult, January Jurdivig has had a passion for social psychology. She works at WellMed as a behavioral health manager for Texas, Florida, and New Mexico. She's a licensed master's level social worker, earned her master's degree at the University of Texas, Arlington. She is currently also working on her master's in healthcare administration from Capella University. January is licensed by the Texas State Board of Social Work Examiners. Dan Holland's passion for mental health began during his internship working in an LGBTQ youth shelter. Since then, his passion has continued to grow by serving adults affected by HIV and cancer. Today, Dan works for Wellman as a behavioral health manager in Texas. He is a master's level LCP social worker, licensed clinical social worker. He earned his master's of science in social work From the university of texas austin dan is licensed by the texas state board of social work examiners as a clinical social worker and lcsw and let me start with january since you took the initiative to propose this topic to us which we really really appreciate what is it about mental health as dr perry pointed out nobody wants to talk about it
2: Absolutely, um, you know, we have come to the board um, with such a passion, Dan and myself, to really take mental health and really insert it into the primary care setting. Um, we are in a position that this topic is so taboo still. While there has been movement, it is still very much under under-addressed, and we feel like the opportunity to utilize primary care, to insert discussions about behavioral health is extremely important.
0: And as we look at behavioral health, uh, we we tend to think of younger people. But the reality is, as Dr. Perry said, among the older population, uh, depression and other behavioral health issues are very real
2: absolutely you are correct on that it's it's so unfortunate that even through the pandemic um, you can really see how uh, people are in a position that they are isolated they feel lonely and for them there is this notion that it is not okay to feel okay and or, or there is just really an under um, an underestimating of how those feelings affect you. Uh, in other ways, whether it's sleep, whether it's managing your medical care, um, caring for family members. And so we really want to make sure that people understand that this is something that is quite pervasive. We want people to understand that this is something that we can talk about. And, and we're excited to be here to be able to do that today.
0: Dan Holland, the U.S. Surgeon General, just wrote an op-ed piece of the other day in a national publication talking about how he was so impacted during the pandemic by loneliness here's a guy very high visibility a celebrity of sorts uh, who pointed out what uh, i guess we have come to realize the pandemic despite the coronavirus the loneliness associated with us what did it do to people dan
3: yeah we and we know that right now according to the national alliance of mental illness that one in five A U.S. adult experience mental illness, which is a huge amount, um, huge statistic. And I think loneliness and isolation only propagates um, mental illness. Uh, You know, Dr. Perry referenced that stigma, that taboo um, that prevents people from coming in. Well, that taboo and that stigma is coupled with isolation. Really, you have two forces working against people coming forward and asking for help. And I think just getting over that activating step is a huge hurdle for a lot of people. And it really um, continues and propagates um, these mental illnesses for our older adults.
0: Now, for folks who may have just joined us, you're listening to Docs in a Pod. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Dr. Tamika Perry. And we're talking on our Docs in a Pod hotline with January Jertvig and Daniel Holland, both involved in behavioral health, working for WellMed, uh, and and trying to, I I would assume January, educate PCPs, primary care physicians, uh, to be aware of these kinds of issues and to bring them up with their patients. Absolutely. You know,
2: I know that um, I have had much contact with providers who have such a desire to address uh, patients in a holistic manner, you know, making sure that um, their chronic health issues are taken care of as well as their emotional care. Um, But oftentimes we really come into this place where um, mental health resources are under uh, provided or even just in zip codes that it could be really necessary. Those, those, Professionals; those professionals are not even available to provide that service. So, you know whether you're looking at medication management, you know you are now looking at primary care doctors that really have to uh, wear another hat um, to make sure that um, people are taken care of from an emotional perspective. What are some of the? I'll
0: go ahead, Doctor Perry.
1: No, I was probably going to go in the same direction of you. That that's that's so true, and you should be comfortable expressing to your physician. And the physician should be comfortable or the clinician asking you certain questions to elicit if you have the signs and symptoms of let's just say for depression for instance so i mean dan can you besides just being sad what are some some of the things a patient may experience if they're depressed
3: yeah a lack of energy um often called you know lethargy um you'll see a change in interests you know uh, withdrawing from things that might be interesting to the patient Things that once gave them pleasure may not give them pleasure anymore. Even if, like in serious depression, even foods that used to taste good now won't have much of a flavor. It's a very, depression can be a very physical phenomenon. We, we often associate the word depression with the word sadness. And while that's certainly true and tears may be an expression of sadness, maybe a part of it, but there are real physical um manifestations of this illness that feel almost like an organic illness that lack of energy drive lack of pleasure
1: you can also have sleep disturbances too mm-hmm. uh you know when people are depressed you know there are changes in the levels of serotonin epinephrine norepinephrine, and dopamine in your brain and some of the medicines we provide kind of help stabilize those changes, but it's more than just medicine. It's the services that you all not not only recommend to us, but you all provide. And what are some of those services?
3: So both talk therapy and psychiatry Um, are available for patients seeking mental health treatment. And you mentioned medications, which I think are very important and powerful tools. And traditionally, psychiatry or your PCP, those with um, medical backgrounds can manage those conditions. Nurse practitioners, PAs that are in the psych field can do that. But also equally important is talk therapy. A lot of times thoughts, um, there's a huge link between our thinking and our feeling and our feeling and our thinking. And by exploring how thoughts affect um, our emotions, we can begin to sort of unravel some underlying beliefs and assumptions that might be um, exacerbating whatever mental health condition is going on.
0: That's an important point in January. uh, We know statistically uh, men over the age of 65, especially Anglo men, are more likely to commit suicide than the general population. Is that part of this problem, that they're not being helped and addressing their depression, for example?
2: Absolutely. And I think a lot of people um, are not even really aware of that statistic, um, which is so scary because if we are not in a position that we can ask these really difficult questions when when people, uh, our patients come in to see us, um, specifically, that population, their success rate is so much higher, and uh, it could have really been addressed um, at that primary care level. Extremely important, I think. The whole concept of looking at that and the inclusion of of emergency nine eight eight should be something that should be shared with with people on the on the uh, call today.
0: So, what would a significant other or or a, a, a parent? Uh, know in terms of symptoms they would see uh, th- that their loved one is in trouble? I, I have
2: seen it come in very different uh, ways. Um, I have seen where a person could be completely calm and demeanor, um, and just they have just really accepted, they have planned Um, uh, uh, something serious out um, that they're going to harm themselves, whether, you know, unfortunately, they're going to hang themselves or take medications. Um, I've also seen people come in really distressed state. And, um, but I can honestly tell you, I have, I myself have not experienced somebody that if you point blank ask, Um, ask a person with genuine compassion and care to really know what's going on with them, they have been in a position that they would tell me what is going on and that they do feel suicidal. And it is with a plan if that is the case.
0: Uh, And that's important. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. And uh, Dan, I want to come back to you as well in terms of the LGBTQ community, a community that often in our society today continues to be ostracized what's the impact on individuals in in that community as well. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Docs in a Pod. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Dr. Tamika Perry. We're talking with uh, behavioral social workers and uh, therapists, January Jurdivig and Daniel Holland. Stick with us right here on Docs in a Pod. Oh, we're so pleased you're sticking with us right here on Docs and a Pod. This is a very important topic we're taking up today in, in honor of National Mental Health Month. We're looking at mental and behavioral health, how it impacts individuals and families, and we've got a couple of experts with us, including our co-host, Dr. Tamika Perry. Uh, With us today is January Jurdevig and Daniel Holland, both experienced in clinical social work. And we're talking, Daniel, about a variety of populations. Uh, Part of your early work was in the LGBTQ community. If you happen to be gay in our society today, you are still, as hard as it is for, for me to believe or accept, you're still very often ostracized. That in and of itself can trigger mental health issues, I would think.
3: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Any of the identities that fall into that spectrum, um, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, uh, queer questioning, um, can experience that uh, that level of ostracization and uh, sometimes isolation. And we know that there's a relationship between isolation and continuing Um, mental health issues. And I think also just from a very basic common sense uh, way of thinking about it is that uh, folks who are um, isolated or ostracized um, will be less likely to ask for help because there's a lower level of trust. So when they've experienced discrimination or uh, stigma based on their identity, and it can be a variety of different identities, it can even be cultural identity, ethnicity, um, they're less likely to trust people in power. And that might be a physician. That might be someone who works at a government office. Just really anything. They're, and even if they make it in, they're less likely to discuss things that are sensitive to them.
0: Um, so so they, I think that, they won't yeah. open up.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they want to. They'll they'll still stay in that defensive, uh, protection, survival mode. And and what that oftentimes is saying is, you know, just trust people that are close to you. Let's not, you know, if it's a stranger, let's not talk to them. It might take a lot longer to develop trust with someone who's trying to be a helper.
0: So January, what's the answer here? How do we get people to open up? We know in some communities, for example, uh, in the Hispanic community, there's great resistance to mental health counseling. There's great resistance to acknowledging a mental health issue and they're not alone. How do we reach out to people?
2: I think that uh, one of the biggest things that we can do as providers is uh, or or as just people within the community is coming to the board in a genuine and and, and a compassionate and non-judgmental fashion. I think that um, if we have the ability to do that and actively listen to what um, each, each person and audience is needing, then we have the opportunity to really clinically use the information that we we have as professionals to help. Um, people along the way. If we do not include compassion and genuine kindness into our modes of how to help people with mental health, I think that we will continue to uh, this to
0: be under addressed. What led you into this field?
2: Uh, I, I have to tell you, it started in high school for me. Um, there was a really strong desire um, for myself. Um, to watch over and try to help people who were struggling, um, even in high school, and I really made the decision that that was something that I wanted um, to pursue pursue in a lifelong um, profession. I didn't know at that time how that was going to happen. Um, so psychology was the first gate, but um, I have a I have such a strong strong desire to to really try to connect with people in a really genuine fashion and help them.
0: And Dan, in your case?
3: Yeah, so I had an experience volunteering at a youth shelter, an LGBTQ youth shelter, and uh, it really profoundly affected me and um, influenced my career to go into, I studied psychology and sociology, and then for my master's for social work, and I I think I really found, I really locked in when I I did my internship in New York and um, really got to work with all kinds of different communities and um, just really fell in love with the profession and the ability to uh, address change, not only in the individual level, but also group and also social societal level.
0: And January, uh, for those who are listening, uh, what's your best advice on uh, when you need help and how to ask for help? You know,
2: I feel like that this is almost like a proactive approach, but I really think having a discussion ever before there is um, a, a potential crisis is the way to go. I think that um, really uh, normalizing questions that ask about your emotional health, um, really accepting that the mind is connected to the rest of the body. It's so easy um, for people to try to just focus on chronic health issues. Um that the the mind gets left out, but if we can have these conversations long before there's a crisis, I think that there's such an opportunity um, to improve the care of of people from an emotional perspective.
0: What would be some examples of normalizing questions? You know,
2: I think one way to do this is, uh, you know. With our healthcare, um, there's there's annual uh, visits uh, that people um, go to, and I really think the inclusion of making sure um, that that a discussion of how people feel if they feel sad or you know if they feel like they're worthy, um, these types of questions that are genuinely and honestly asked, and then there's follow up by the healthcare um, providers. Um, I think is a real good way to start um, with helping people um, in
0: the communities. Tamika, how do you do that with your patients?
1: Well, you know, you have to have an open, honest, like January said, compassionate um, relationship with your patients. And you ask, you know, do you, like Dad alluded to earlier, Ms. Johnson, I know you like going to the movies every Friday. You haven't told me about any movies lately. What's going on? You know you're and I tell people all the time you're not the happy perky Miss Johnson that you used to be. what happened? So you have to know your patients and your family members and your friends need to be able to approach need to be able to approach their friends and say, listen, what's going on how can we get some help? And the one thing that I wanted to ask before we go on is when we get that help January, Dan, how do we know if it do we need a psychiatrist a psychologist, a counselor, a therapist? How do we know which direction to go?
3: That's a great question, and I think, you know, shopping, so to speak, for lack of a better word, for mental health can be really challenging for folks. Um, it's it's hard, you know, really finding that relationship with the provider. I think is the best indicator of success. Oftentimes, just out of the gate, if this is a new patient to mental health, regardless of whether that person is, you know, social worker, counselor, psychiatrist, psychologist, if they have a good relationship with that provider they can get all kinds of help. You know, that person will be able to steer them to a different kind of professional if that's what they need. Um, but that good, solid relationship, if they're clicking with that person, that is a huge step. But just to answer your question, generally psychiatrists, nurse practitioners, PAs are the ones who are prescribing psych medication to treat uh, mental illness. And the ther- what we call therapists, psychologists, clinical social workers, and professional counselors... That's the group that are doing mainly talk therapy. And and best practices, those two camps work together to treat patients. But sometimes they're office separately. Some patients may need just and may be fine with just some psychiatric medication management. Some may be great with just that talk therapy piece. And then others, um, and I think best practices is to have a little bit of both.
0: And as you think about looking for that therapist, uh, you could certainly, as you said, start with your uh, PCP, uh, Dr. Jamie Heisman, a clinical psychologist we often have on, uh, recommends people go to Psychology Today uh, website and type in their zip code, and they'll get a list of uh, uh, therapists and counselors in their area that uh, would be worth exploring. In January, can you test drive a therapist before you make a commitment? Can you come in and you know and see if you get along? Pick the tires. <laughs>
2: You sure can. You know, uh, one thing that I really encourage people to do is that uh, you are going to interview that person just as much that as I think that a therapist uh, or, or a provider should take a look at you and see if there's, there's something that they can do. But uh, it is absolutely okay. If you are not getting a good therapeutic relationship with that person, as Dan is saying, um, that therapeutic relationship is key uh, to making sure um, that that is a good and successful um, piece of your healthcare.
0: What are the questions you ought to ask a therapist before you make a commitment to uh, engage in a professional relationship?
2: You know, one of the one of the biggest things that I would say, um, if it was my mother, if it was, you know, a family member, you want to ask them um, really, in all honesty, uh, you know, how what is your mode of therapy? You know, uh, for for us, I want to know that this is something that could potentially be brief. Are we going to talk about, um, you know, like changing behaviors? Are we going to have long discussions where we're talking about the past? Um, And, and that can really help a person point to what type of therapy that they want, what kind of provider are they looking for and how quickly are they looking to get, um, you know, any kind of uh, improvement um, from certain types of therapy. I really, my, mm -hmm. go ahead. I, myself, I really uh, feel like looking at empirical data, um, looking at cognitive and cognitive behavior type therapies. Um, in addition to mindfulness-based approaches um, can be really, really helpful in the way of uh, talk therapy specifically.
0: Dan, anything you want to add?
3: I love the way you frame that because there's, you know, all kinds of fancy ways we can talk about therapeutic approaches. But I think from a patient layperson perspective, really you're looking at what is going to work for you. Are you wanting to do more of a deep dive into your history and your past? with your therapist, or are you wanting something that's more like tangible, practical in the here and now, or are you wanting both? And I think that is something that really asking your therapist, starting from there can kind of get you a sense of what and how they operate. And I think just asking the question to your therapist, you know, how, how does therapy work with you? How is this going to work? Where, how do you get change with your patients? (laughs) I think is a great, It's a question you would ask with your doctor. It's a question you would ask if you were seeing a specialist, you know, what are we going to be doing? Yeah.
0: You get the last word for Dr. Tamika Perry and for our very special guest today. And we're delighted to have January Jurdivig and Daniel Holland. I'm Ron Aaron. Thanks for joining us. Mental Health Month. It's important. And thanks for listening to Docs in a Pod. Executive producers for Docs are Dan Calderon and Leah Medrano. Our producer is Natalie Ibarra. And associate producer is Isaac Wilker. Thank you for listening to Docs a Pod presented by WellMed. We welcome your emails with suggestions and comments on this program at radio at wellmed.net. And be sure to tune in next week for another edition of Docs in a Pod with Dr. Tamika Perry and Ron Aaron.